Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Hey everyone, today we're here with Graham, and Graham actually runs our sexual health program at Pride. Uh, we took a little bit of a hiatus from doing the sexual health program, and then Graham, in conjunction with our uh, Director of Clinical Services, Todd Connady, revamped the program and re-implemented it into our programming. So Graham, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for being here. And why don't we just jump right into it? Tell us what a sexual health program is. So um, thank you for having me, first of all. A sexual health program kind of looks at how sexual health plays into the aspects of addiction. That's what our main focus is going to be. So we often find that in terms of specifically gay males, most often than not, meth and sex are intertwined. And so we kind of want to untwine that process because for substance use, we can say, awesome, stay away from them, stay away from all your triggers and stuff. But it's not really always realistic to tell somebody, don't have sex for the rest of your life. And so that's really interesting because on our last episode, we had talked about um, the use of meth and sex. And I had mentioned, you know, from a non-clinical perspective, I had asked Todd, like, please explain this to me as if I were in second grade. And what he basically told me was the place in your brain where dopamine is released when you use meth is the same place where dopamine is released when you have sex. And so for me, that really was helpful of seeing, um, for me as a non-clinician again, to see that you're developing a dual diagnosis addiction. Correct. And so how do you begin, and, and you had mentioned um, intertwining of the two, how do you separate them? Where, where do you start when you get someone in your program? So we kind of start by looking at how the sexual behaviors have kind of evolved over time in terms of what they look like before the meth use and then how the meth use has kind of changed them so they might not align with their morals and values anymore. Mm-hmm. And we start looking at that process via, like, sexual health fantasies. So over time, a lot of people don't know what it means to have healthy sex without the use of substances. And again, that kind of plays into who they are as people not aligning correctly, if that makes sense. That does make sense. So you mentioned that this is an issue in the gay male community. Do we see this in women as well? We do see it in women. Um, I will speak from my own clinical practice. It seems like a lot of men are the ones coming through the program just because when you think about other substances, so like I'll use alcohol, for example, we've had people who have had an alcohol dependence disorder come through. And when they use alcohol, it lowers their inhibitions, right? As many people know. But the thing is that that's a depressant, so they're not going to want to continue engaging in substance use. When it comes to meth, it's a stimulant, so they're going to want to be going for hours and hours and hours, sometimes days, right? So that's where like things like the PNP community come in, so the party and play. Yeah, and my understanding um, for meth addicts is like, you could be living under a bridge and think the world is great, mm-hmm. versus alcohol, where it kind of brings you into a, like a deeper depression. Correct, yeah. That's what I noticed. So this is such an interesting topic and one that I don't think a lot of other treatment centers do. And I think part of the reason why we do it is because our population is specific to the LGBTQ community. Why gay men and not straight men with this specific disorder? That's a very good question. I think in terms of gay men, one kind of 
topic that's like taboo is that we're supposed to all be like promiscuous, right? That's the stereotype of the gay male is it's, they can't be monogamous. They can't be with one single person at a time. They have to be with multiple partners and things like body count kind of turns into a game for some of them. And meth then kind of heightens that game and makes it even more fun for people. Can you explain body count? Yeah, so it's kind of the number of people that people have sex with. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this like kind of notch on the bedpost, if you will. Correct, like yes, <laughs> exactly. Once you have sex on drugs, are you looking to, I guess, achieve that high like the second time? Like, are you always looking to get higher or to get more? So, yeah, it seems like a lot of our substance users... It's not necessarily that the high is going to be the same. They're chasing that first high no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And so, like you kind of touched on before, with the dopamine and serotonin and all of the brain receptors kind of going into overdrive with meth naturally and then sex being combined with that, it's an even more heightened experience that people are constantly doing. And we can even find that some people in the long-term effects can actually have sex without some sort of substance where things like erectile dysfunction will come into play or pornography addiction comes in because they simply, you know, can't get it up without some other stimuli. Yeah. Wow. So, sir, we see a lot of, like, stigma and shame within um, this, you know, realm of, you know, having sex and, you know, using meth to be able to have sex and then you can't have sex because you're not high. Is there, you know, a lot of stigma and shame that these men experience now once they're sober trying to have sex? And how do you go about remedying that? Yeah, uh, when it comes to stigma and shame, it seems like when they're in the community of it at the time of the use, there isn't really any kind of, it's not hidden, um, it's very normalized, right? So even in the meth and sex community, the PMP, it's the fact of HIV is a big one, right? Because everyone's having a lot of unprotected sex potentially. And so the HIV people are actually the majority rather than the minority. So even that stigma goes away. And when it comes to becoming sober, they have to kind of figure out who they are, again, as a person, what it means to be having their sexual behaviors not only be pleasurable, but also non-shameful and align with who they are again. So it's a lot of self-discovery and the stigma can come from, you know, being in your 30s or 40s and not being able to say, I do know what I like, I don't know what I like when it comes to sex. So it's kind of like they're pushed back into almost their teenage years. Wow. Which we see an intersection with that coming out in the LGBTQ community. A lot of people revert back to their teenage years, right. crushes, all that right. high school <laughs> drama with relationships. And then we even see that again once you get sober, uh, is what you're saying. Right, correct. And then even in terms of substance use, too, one thing that's often said is that however old they are when they start the substance, emotionally, mentally, they kind of stop at that process. And the same thing goes for sex as well. So, yeah. Well, and I think that's even an interesting topic, too, is like I was talking with a friend about this, and it's like once you come out, it's like a second puberty for you whenever that happens. And I, so I see whenever I see unhealthy sexual behaviors or anything like that from someone in our community, it just is like I feel for them because how can you not have and carry all of that shame and internalized homophobia, you know, negative, homophobia mm-hmm. negative feelings? from that time spent in the closet. Right. So do you think that that has an impact at all on some of your clients you see? Yeah, definitely. It It's also really interesting to see the different sexual behaviors that come out based off of when they came out. So it's sometimes you can make correlations of the older they are when they come out, 
the more that they had to hide and not really be their true authentic selves. And so that's where Matthews comes in, right? Because then it's like, oh my God, I'm totally having sex with men, not because I'm gay, but because I'm high. Yeah. And so they get to kind of have that excuse and then slowly um, transition. And you often see that with, like, alcohol, too. Fascinating. So it's like their way of getting comfortable with being who they are is through drug use. Right. They experiment wow. with drug use and then they experiment with, like, sexual behaviors. And so it's not that they're gay, it's that they were high. Right. But in some, <laughs> cer- in some circumstances, not everyone. Right. But, right. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've even, to your point, I've had, you know, calls before where people say, oh, I've used this substance over the weekend, and then I hooked up with a boy for the first time. Am I a drug addict? Right. What would you even say to those people? They use a substance one time, and they hook up with uh, a man, and how do they not continue that that pattern? Well, substance use, we have to follow the DSM, and right now we're on the DSM-5, so we have very strict criteria that we have to follow. So things like cravings and urges. So it doesn't necessarily depend on how long the person has been using the substance rather than how it has affected different parts of their lives. So if it's affected things like relationships with family, friends, significant others, anything like that, if it's starting to affect their schoolwork, stuff like that, or even work, right? You can't do work if you're not sober, then that would turn into a problem. So just like a one or two time use, uh, for me personally, I would say we need to address it a little bit deeper and kind of look at it with a few different aspects rather than just saying immediately right off the bat that it's a problem. And then kind of same with sex use, right? Like you have sex with a, the same gender one time, does that necessarily mean you're gay? Yeah. No, it could mean that you're questioning or any of that kind of stuff. So you had mentioned post treatment that they have to take some sort of, um, I guess, abstinence when it comes to sex for people who have this problem. Ballpark, and everybody's different, um, what is that length of time um, for the average patient client? So for the average patient and client, I would say the main one that I kind of normally see is a year, Um, but it's going to differ from person to person, right? And also, what they're kind of abstaining from also changes. So some people don't want to masturbate. Some people don't want to look at porn. Or some people want to only do like three months at a time of masturbating but without porn and then slowly integrating like healthy porn back into all of that because there are things like using porn, right? And using porn is porn that has people like IV use and then have sex. I did not know that. So, yeah, even with, like, drugs, you have to watch out for your triggers. Mm -hmm. You want to, you know, go to places that you either bought drugs or use a lot. Even with with sex, you're looking at, you know, avoiding these triggers. And so porn is a trigger for someone. Or, like, I imagine, obviously, using porn would be a huge trigger for someone. Right. Um, You just want to avoid that. How can we support these individuals? I mean, people may know someone in their life that, you know, may have unhealthy sexual behaviors. How do we support loved ones going through this process? So sex is very taboo in the kind of society, right? And so I think to give these people the space and safety, frankly, to be able to open up about it is one of the best ways to support them. I had an old professor that said, out with judgment, in with curiosity. And that's the approach that I personally take, especially when it comes to sexual stuff, because, I mean, this is something that's affecting their lives in multiple aspects. And I want them to be able to come to me and be able to talk openly and candidly so that we can best help them and figure out the best approach that we need to take with them. And I think that can be done with family members, with friends, with everybody in their lives. 
can you repeat what your old professor said? Out with judgment and with curiosity. Correct. <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we say in this community, we give you know presentations on how to be inclusive to the LGBTQ population. We say education is our best weapon against the negativity, against the mm-hmm. negative, the taboo, like you said. Um, and so we really yeah, just bring education and just you know approach it from a place where you are willing to learn, um, especially within this community. Right. Which, as Graham said earlier on, has just so often been deemed as promiscuous. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I would imagine if I were a client coming through our program with something like this, how hard it would be to even admit that. Right. Because, like you said, it is so tabooed. Yet, it's also really interesting. Like, I I have unplugged from cable years ago, but I was watching network TV the other day, and there was, like, a very, like, I don't want to say hardcore sex scene, but it was very much different than the last (laughs) time I watched cable TV. Skin and Max, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) And so it's, it's hard because it's tabooed, you have this problem, but then sex is also constantly flaunted in your face. Right. And so it's got to be this internal struggle of like, well, and what's what's wrong here? Is it me? Is it society? What is it? And well, so I think that having this program available and the work that you do and, and Todd and some of our other clinicians do is so important and so incredible. Thank you. And it's also interesting coming from a marketing standpoint when you were saying all of that, what sells? Exactly. (laughs) So that's why it's it's everywhere. And yet it's this thing we can't talk about. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's it's unfortunate. But Mm -hmm. so do you have any examples without giving out any specific information how you've seen this program really help clients, you know, taking yourself, putting yourself in a client's shoes, you know, how how can this benefit people? It benefits people because it gives them the space to actually be their true authentic self. I think that that's the number one thing that I always hear is that they knew that sex was a problem. They knew that meth was a problem. And many other treatment centers, they got to address the meth, right? Which is great. That's the first step. That's awesome. But by not addressing the sexual part or even in other centers, they were shut down because it was just like, nope, we're substance use only. They weren't able to move forward with one of their main triggers. Like I said before, they being abstinent a lifetime isn't really feasible. So, And it is interesting because I think this problem, I mean, we're not saying heterosexual people in the general population aren't able to develop sex addictions. Right. But this population, as it pertains to meth use and sex, is so closely linked. Right. So I think that's also something that we hear a lot from clients who, you know, might have gotten a treatment elsewhere is like, well, nobody in my group, like everyone was kind to me and they weren't discriminatory, but nobody had a meth addiction and nobody had a sex addiction. Right. And so, you know, they were kind to me, they listened to me, but I needed that kind of support and that like camaraderie, if you will, of people who've Mm -hmm. been in the same boat as me. Right. Um, Which, I mean, obviously, you know, we don't heal until we feel hurt. Right. And it goes back to two, when it comes to treatment, the opposite of addiction is connection. I thoroughly agree with that. And so when you can't connect with specific members in your small support group, the chances of you succeeding kind of get lowered. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to how, you know, a sexual health program or a culturally specific program may differ from a traditional treatment? Or do you think we pretty much covered it? It's going to differ, I think, for the fact that the topics are going to be different. So we'll be able to talk about different things for different aspects. So I know that myself, we talk a lot about intersectionality. So going back to what it was like being in the closet, what it was like kind of coming out, if your family was supportive or not, and all of that stuff. And I 
have only worked for Pride, so I can't really say what it's like to be at other treatment centers. <laughs> but those are some big topics that I'm kind of assuming are not necessarily brought up in other ones. Well, Graham, this was really insightful. I felt like I knew this program and I learned a lot. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah, so thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. For more information about our services, please call 952-522-5683, visit pride-institute.com, or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.